You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Lots of attention around the first shipments of the COVID-19 vaccine here in the islands. The military's Tripler Hospital is scheduled to receive its first doses today. Kaiser Permanente, which has a presence across the islands, will see its first shipment tomorrow. This morning, we talked with Andrew Giles, the uh, assistant hospital administrator who is leading Kaiser's COVID emergency response. He shares with us the latest on the planned arrival of vaccines for Kaiser's facilities across Hawaii. So we're very excited. We will be receiving our first tray of vaccine uh, through the Department of Health. We're expecting a little under 1,000 doses of vaccine, which should be arriving tomorrow. And uh, we'll go right into our uh, ultra-cold freezer. So we we recently purchased a a freezer that can hold up to an astounding 200,000 doses of vaccine. So we're happy to have that. We'll use the medical center, the hospital here in Moanalua, as our home base, if you will, uh, to receive that vaccine. We'll start our program on Thursday morning. Uh, We have some of our frontline staff that are working in the various COVID units uh, up on deck to receive the vaccine. And over the coming weeks and months, We'll use the hospital as the home base, like I mentioned, and uh, and ship that vaccine out to our various clinic sites to help vaccinate our staff at the clinic and ultimately to the community at large. We have uh, eight registered vaccine uh, administration sites across the four islands, and so we have a, a pretty robust framework in order to uh, get uh, this vaccine out to the people. We do have a large uh, listener base on the neighbor islands. Can you break down, you know, I don't know, the logistics? What are the challenges that are involved? Sure, absolutely. And we're following the Department of Health lead here for a few of these items. So there is two vaccines that that should be available here. So one, of course, is the Pfizer vaccine, which we've already received the FDA approval, which we'll be receiving tomorrow. But there's a second vaccine, the the Moderna vaccine, which has a little bit less restrictive uh, shipping requirements. Uh, it doesn't have that ultra-cold uh, freezer requirement. And so that should be receiving FDA approval uh, hopefully this Thursday. Uh, and so once we receive that approval, that will likely be the vaccine uh, that will be shipped to the outer island just based on, on those uh, ultra-cold requirements. Um, but that's to be worked out with the Department of Health. So we're very eager to get the vaccine out to those folks as well. And uh, we should be able to do that here within the next week or two. And so what is uh, Kaiser's staff across the state? The, the Kaiser staff that would be receiving the vaccine, so the first phase is going to be those that are direct health care workers. And actually, because we are receiving an, an ultra-fine amount, we're receiving just one tray of vaccine. We have uh, really about 4,000 frontline health care workers, but we're only receiving 975 this first go-around tomorrow. So we've, we've uh, whittled that down to really those that are at the highest risk here at the hospital, uh, those that are working in our ERs, ICUs. Uh, things of that nature where they're, they're really in, in uh, close proximity to those that could be a known COVID patient. So we're, we're prioritizing those folks as well as our, our frontline housekeepers, those that the support staff that are really uh, vital to the operation. Uh, and once we vaccinate the majority of the hospital staff, then move to the clinics uh, and, and the rest of our employees across the, the island. And what about for patients? So patients, that's a great question. So uh, we're following the Department of Health plan here. Uh, so phase 1A is going to be those direct health care workers, like I mentioned. Uh, there's a fair amount, uh, just given Hawaii and, and our dependence on a variety of uh, business sectors, there's a fair amount of uh, patients or Kaiser members, for example, that would fall into phase 1B, which is the essential workers defined by the government. So I think we'll catch a fair amount of our patients and members in phase 1B, which is those essential workers. Uh, phase 1C is then the high-risk adults. Those that are high risk have uh, you know, various comorbidities or, or health conditions, or if you're over at 65. But that first phase should go fairly quickly. Uh, the vast majority, those that are not in phase one, would be phase two, uh, and that's uh, the community at large. And, and it really depends on the allocation that we receive, but we're probably looking uh, a month or two out, probably early spring. Okay, for the, for the members, uh, the general members? For the vast, yeah, the vast population throughout the island. Do you see administering the vaccine to patients that are already, you know, hospitalized in your care? That, that's, a, that's a great question. So that's being worked out currently. Um, the, the, uh, what's, what's known at this moment is those that are in skilled nursing facilities or congregate living facilities are at the highest risk. Uh, so there may be scenarios where a patient is admitted to the hospital and uh, is discharged to a skilled nursing facility. 
that would be an applicable scenario based on the guidelines where we would vaccinate uh, here at the hospital potentially, and uh, and then they would uh, you know move over to a skilled nursing facility. Uh, currently, there's no plans to vaccinate um, all inpatients, but that again is being worked out based on uh, allocation, and we'll work with our clinical ethicists and, and others within the Department of Health to uh, prioritize. And I'm not sure, you know, what types of uh, patients that have been maybe a part of a, a trial, you know, because if you've got, you know, a, an issue with the disease, you know, how does that work with the vaccine? Sure. So so there is, uh, if you're referring to contraindications, uh, so, you know, there is uh, the government uh, and the FDA have listed some contraindications. So um, those that, uh, you know, have uh, severe comorbidities, those that have, that have had a uh, history of allergic reactions to vaccines or other therapies, uh, those are those are some individuals that, that may, uh, you know, be in the hospital for other reasons currently. Um, but it's important that, you know, if you have those types of conditions, we, we speak to a healthcare provider and, and uh, you know, they will work very closely with you to let you know if you're a, a good candidate for these vaccines. So then as far as actually inoculating the hospital staff here on Oahu, what would the timetable be if you get the vaccines on Wednesday? So if we get the vaccines on Wednesday, and Wednesday, we're hoping to, uh, by, the, by the end of the year, to get the majority of the hospital staff vaccinated. Uh, we're working very closely. We can do several hundred staff per day. Um, we have, uh, you know, a pretty robust framework to be able to do that. So. Uh, we're, we're open for business. We uh, we hope we get uh, you know great participation, and um, you know, we're we're uh, ready to uh, start this on Thursday. And have you taken a survey of your members of you know what percentage would be uh, willing to do this with no problem? That's a great question. So we haven't done a formal survey. Uh, we've been doing a lot of outreach and education, going to department meetings, uh, having our, our physician partners as well there uh, to help you know cascade the good word on the vaccine. We don't have a firm number. It's somewhere between 70 and 90 percent we're, we're expecting to be able to vaccinate. Uh, certainly, if, if you're pregnant or, like I mentioned, there's some other contraindications, those individuals won't be good candidates for a vaccine. Uh, but, you know, there, there is some good uh, buzz going around that um, you know, we're, we're expecting to turn out on Thursday. Okay. Well, uh, are you already uh, lined up to, to get yours? Yes, that's, that's uh, another great question. So uh, I am. I'm very anxious. Uh, we are, are following the DOH and CDC guidelines very closely, and because I am in management and not a direct uh, patient care worker, I want to be respectful of the process. Uh, we're allowing those that, that truly work with directly with COVID patients to be those that was first in line. Uh, but we'll work very quickly through those various phases, and uh, I'm hoping within the next week or so I'll be able to uh, get my shot. Okay. All right. Well, we will uh, keep our fingers crossed for everybody that, you know, the structure of uh, of actually getting those trays and those doses out to the individual islands uh, goes off without a hitch. No, I just think for the for the listeners out there that uh, you know we really need to rely on the the medical professionals here. If we take a hard look at the data, um, certainly this is a safe and efficacious vaccine. Uh, there may be uh, some slight side effects in folks, but uh, having kind of been around in the hospital and, and seeing some of the tragedies that have unfolded with COVID-19, uh, this vaccine is, is definitely something that's uh, going to be a historical moment, and we uh, really encourage everyone to uh, take a hard look at the data and get your vaccine when it's time to do so. That was Andrew Giles, Assistant Administrator and Lead for Kaiser's COVID-19 Emergency Operations Center, talking about the plan to dispatch the vaccines to its clinics across the state. is running out for Hawaii to make use of emergency pandemic relief funds that were awarded to the state by the federal government. The deadline is in two weeks. HBR's Ryan Finnerty has been reporting on the CARES Act and joins us now. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. So, hey, remind us, how much money are we talking about? 
the the CARES Act, everyone might remember, was the two trillion dollar rescue package that was passed by Congress in March, and it paid for programs like supplemented unemployment insurance, stimulus checks that were sent out to individuals and families, and the Paycheck Protection Program for small businesses. Of that total, more than two trillion dollars, Hawaii received around ten billion in total. And a lot of that went directly to individuals and businesses through some of those programs that I just mentioned. But there was also this other pot of money called the Coronavirus Relief Funds, or CRF. And those were the, uh, the funds given directly to states and large cities to help them pay for unbudgeted expenses related to the pandemic. And that's the pot of money we're talking about right now. Hawaii, the state of Hawaii, received about $1.2 billion in those CRF funds, and it shared some of that with the smaller counties, the neighbor islands that didn't qualify based on population size for a direct award. The city and county of Honolulu received its own separate amount. Um, and those funds have gone to pay for things like rent assistance, paying for personal protective equipment to essential businesses, and even the travel screening measures that are in place at state airports. But as you mentioned at the top, um, time is running out to spend that money because when Congress approved the funds in March, the money came with a catch. It all had to be spent before the end of the year, and any unspent funds would be returned to the U.S. Treasury. And the intent of that was kind of twofold. Um, Congress wanted states and cities to get the money out fast to people who are in need. It also wanted to make sure that the states weren't squirreling away funds to pay for non-pandemic expenses. A big one that was cited was public worker pension liabilities, which in some states um, are, are pretty substantial, uh, including Hawaii. Yeah, no, you know, and across the country, we're seeing states scrambling to try and spend all this money. You know, uh, what have you found out? You know, how does Hawaii compare? Um, it's a bit of a mixed bag. There's definitely um, states that uh, are also struggling because there are a lot of restrictions on this money. Um, it's not simply that um, they're sitting on their hands. It can only be used for expenses related to the pandemic. And so there's a lot of concern over record keeping and making sure that if there's an audit, um, the state isn't on the hook to pay it back. Um, and so other states have, have had issues. But we seem to be um, ha uh, one of the slowest um, in talking to some of uh, my colleagues in other states who, who also cover state houses. Um, you know, it, I guess it's a sort of has glass half full, glass half empty kind of situation. Um, on the positive outlook, the state has spent about $480 million as of this morning. It was just updated. Um, and that's money that's gone out to residents and businesses who are struggling with the financial impact of the pandemic, and that's a lot of money. Um, but if you look at it from the other hand, um, that's just over half, about 55% of the total. So there's a, a pretty substantial portion that has not yet uh, been put to use. And um, I spoke about that with Jill Takuda. She's a former state senator who is now working with the the Hawaii Data Collaborative to track how CARES Act funds are being spent in Hawaii. We're still basically about 50% expended. So that is always of, of concern that as we're looking at the last couple of weeks, making sure that if it's, you know, can it be spent on those intended purposes in which it was awarded? And the, it's not entirely clear if that can be done uh, at this point. We're getting right near the end. Um, it is worth no noting that there's a third category that lies somewhere in between spent and unspent, um, which the Hawaii Data Collaborative is calling encumbered. And that basically means um, those are goods or services that the state has contracted for or entered into an agreement to buy but the payment hasn't necessarily gone out yet or it hasn't been processed or it might be in review in some way. And so there is a chance that a good chunk of, of the unspent money could move into the, the spent column in the next two weeks. Um, the, that encumbered category represents about another 200 million or so. Um, and there's a chance that uh, some or all of that could be spent in the next week. 
Um, but at this point, it looks like a, a large portion of the money will go unspent. You know, uh, Jill Takuda, you know, is a former uh, head of the uh, Senate Money Committee, so she knows numbers. But there has been, you know, lots of talk about that money is going to be going to the uh, state's unemployment fund. Talk about that. Yeah, this is. Um, I, I would describe it as a as a fail safe almost that the state legislature built in when it divvied up this money. So the federal government gave it to the state, um, and then in Hawaii, the state legislature and the governor worked together to decide how to spend it. Um, there were some disagreements over that, but the state legislature passed a law assigning it all. Um, and built into that law was a provision that any unspent funds, any money that was unspent by December 28th of this year would be directed into the state's unemployment fund, the unemployment trust fund. Um, and that was basically the intent of that was to make sure that none of the money really goes unspent so that it, it's it's not sitting um, in a bank account at the end of the month and then has to be sent back to the U.S. Treasury in Washington using it for unemployment is uh, a, a legitimate use as far as the federal government is concerned. So we won't be losing the money per se, but it's not going to be going directly to people in need if that's the outcome that ends up happening. Um, and there are some benefits to that, uh, that course of action. The unemployment fund has been extremely stressed by this recession. We still have in Hawaii the highest unemployment rate in the nation, and the state actually had to take uh, a loan of about one billion with a B dollars from the federal government earlier this year to be able to keep paying out unemployment benefits, um, and that comes with a cost. The loan has interest, and anyone with a mortgage or a car payment knows that three percent annually adds up over time, and so you can imagine. 3% of $1 billion would be quite a major expense for state taxpayers in the future. So Governor David Ige has been arguing for a while now, um, as the pace of CARES Act spending uh, became apparent, that uh, using a big chunk of these funds to pay down that loan is actually a smart financial decision that will stay save the state money in the long run because it will be uh, less interest payments. Um, and, and, you know, the, the counter argument to that is that the money was meant to help people directly in the community, residents and businesses that are struggling with this recession, um, which is a valid point. But Jill Takuda says that, um, you know, if you look at it in the sense that we would have to be paying back that loan at some point, um, using this money now to pay down a part of it will free up other funds in the future to address some of these other problems that we're experiencing uh, as a result of the pandemic. There is also the opportunity to be able to place some of these additional funds towards those COVID-related eligible costs that the state has had to incur. Every million that goes in towards covering some of those costs that were unbudgeted and unanticipated just gives them a, a little bit more cushion to be able to balance out. Okay, so it looks like uh, uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, what gets spent in the next week or so, and uh, we'll be watching to see what the governor comes out with his uh, proposed budget. Thanks so much, Ryan. Sure thing, Catherine. You've been uh, hearing from Ryan Finnerty. You can find his stories uh, about the COVID uh, uh, CARES money uh, on hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs in finance, marketing, and information systems. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Hi, this is Jose Fajardo, president of Hawaii Public Radio, with a special mahalo to all those who contributed during our recent fund drive. Thanks to you, we raised over $176,000 and welcomed 223 new members to our ohana. Your support ensures that HPR will remain strong in the new year, and it means that we can keep bringing you more of the news, information, and music programs that you rely on. Mahalo, and happy holidays from all of us.
Next time on The World, a young Latina's first time vote for president. She chose Biden. Her grandpa was all about Trump. He kept saying, Trump won, Trump won, but like in Spanish. <laughs> and I was just like, no, he did it. Stop listening to your news. <laughs> One Mexican-American family splits their vote and exposes a generational divide. Their story in the top news from around the globe, it's on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. More at honolulumuseum.org. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today features a story by reporter Brittany Light. Politics and opinion editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about the business climate on Kauai. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, Kauai not doing so good? It's a it's a real struggle, and and, and Brittany, uh, who actually worked on Kauai before she joined us at Civil Beat, stays in touch, goes over there quite a lot. She opens her story today at the Grand Hyatt Kauai Resort and Spa, which Poipu, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the largest hotel on the Garden Island, and it came back uh, last month in November. The hotel brought about uh, maybe 400, 500 of its staff back to work. I mean, that's half of its original size. But it's because there were indications, solid indications, that people wanted to go travel to Kauai again. You saw indications, bookings um, to the island. Uh, but then uh, along came the day after Thanksgiving, and that's the day that Governor Ige approved Mayor Derek Kawakami's request to, to pull out of that safe travels program, right, the one that's opened October 15th, requiring the, the pre-travel testing so you could bypass the quarantine but, you know, that's not the case anymore. Everybody has to go under quarantine when they visit Kauai for the time being. The mayor has said that it is needed in order to regain control of COVID-19. Numbers were pretty low. And then, of course, they had a bit of a spike. Right. So now we've got, what, the Grand Hyatt <laughs> what, shutting down again? Yes, and, and definitely. And it, it's not the only organization. And, and the reason is because is the numbers just aren't there. Uh, Brittany looks at... Passenger arrivals, for example, on December 2nd, they plunged more than 90%. That's amazing. She looked at an unemployment claims report one week in which it jumped something like 15% from the week before. Uh, The Chamber of Commerce over there is saying, you know, a lot of businesses really are on their last lifeline. Uh, Yes, some of them are going to reapply for SBA loans. But there's businesses like the Ono Family Restaurant that's in Kapa'a. And according to Brittany's story, it's, it's not going to reopen after 40 years uh, of a family business. You know, you just can't survive on, on catering and takeout. Yeah, I mean, you, we're talking public health, but there's also economic health. And, and there's a price to pay, I guess, for the shutdown. There is. And here's the, the concern. Uh, a, a lot of the folks that Brittany talked to on Kauai uh, said, you know, when they talk to visitors or people that think about coming here, they're frustrated by the constant changes to, you know, what's the protocol? When can I come? For how long can I stay? Do I have to get a test? Do I have to do quarantine? It changes so often. And what she's hearing people tell her is that tourists are saying, look, we're going to go somewhere else. This is just not a big uh, attraction for us. We don't want to go through all these hard hoops in order to travel to Kauai. Yeah. They either go to Florida or Mexico. I don't know. Yeah, there's plenty of others. You know, another thing that was interesting in Brittany's story, I thought today, is there's actually a photo of one of those electronic monitoring bracelets. Because remember, uh, bubble resorts uh, Mm -hmm. have been operating on Kauai. I think there's at least five of them. And, you know, it's there to make sure that you don't leave the property. I mean, you can go golfing. You can use the swimming pool. Everyone's got to abide by the the social distancing and whatnot. But you got to wear that monitor. But here's the bottom line. You can't leave the property. And, I mean, I mean, that's nice to visit a place where it seems to be safe, but I think you're going to visit Hawaii because you want to go to the beaches, you want to drive around, you want to see other attractions. And so that's another frustration for folks who, who may come here yeah, cause or it, want to come here. It, 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 you know, you're weighing, right? This is risky business traveling. You know, what am I going to do if I get there? And, you know, the rules change. Exactly. And as as you mentioned in the earlier report with Ryan, you know, the governor's going to introduce his budget next week. And we'll see without that revenue coming from tourists, that's going to contribute to this huge hole in our state budget. Right. So uh, 
a lot can happen uh, in uh, in the next uh, couple of weeks before 2020 goes away. <laughs> and uh, let's look for uh, a, a brighter 2021. And uh, again, hearts go out to the small businesses on Kauai and all the islands. But thanks so much, Absolutely. Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read Brittany Light's story at civilbeat.org. You know, the funeral industry has had to make a real adjustment during this pandemic. It's not been easy for grieving families and funeral uh, home staff having to change their way of dealing with saying aloha to loved ones during an already stressful time. We reached out to Mitchell Dodo, the vice president of Dodo Mortuary, a Big Island family business which has been around for more than a century. From the beginning of the year up until about the middle of March, I'd say, you know, it was a pretty regular year for us, business-wise at least, you know. We've been servicing the community for over a hundred years here on the Big Island, so I'd, I'd like to think that we know what we're doing after that time. So the year started off, the first quarter pretty much as usual, and then COVID came. And then, you know, the entire public took precautions from, you know, first of all, avoiding people who went to China. In the previous two weeks, any travel to China, we you know, we were told to avoid those people. Then it came to be more common where you have to wear a face mask, wash your hands, hand sanitizing, which was which was doable for us as a business. But what really um, disrupted the normal course of activity for us is when we were not allow, allowed to, to gather in, in great numbers for public gatherings. And I'll give you some perspective on that, Catherine. Our chapel in Hilo, our mortuary chapel, can seat about 200 people. And we have additional space with, with uh, how would you say, like a removable wall to seat an additional 100 people for a total of 300 people within the chapel. You know, that was quickly reduced. I think it was first maybe 100 and 125 maybe was the first reduction, down to maybe 175 and 50 until we're finally here at no more than 10 people for indoor gatherings in Hawaii County. And, you know, going from a pretty good-sized chapel with 200 people down to 10 people, it, it just doesn't make having a public service uh, feasible anymore for the families that we serve. It's like basically choosing 10 best friends to participate in the funeral service. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. So it, it made things really difficult for us. And what has happened is a lot of the families we're serving now, they've elected to simply hold off until things get better. You know, we hear that so often in our office. We, we're, we'd like you to help us, the families tell us. Help us with the cremation. Maybe we'll do a short viewing before the cremation. Do the cremation. And then they say, we'll contact you when things get better. And... You know, right here today, I mean, there's a little bit of a glimmer of hope with the vaccine that things are going to get better, but it's certainly not going to resume overnight like how they were at the beginning of March of this year, where we could we could see 200, maybe 300 people within our chapel. And I think because of the gatherings, that is really what's restricting our customers from holding any type of service. What have you seen just with the families? Hesitation on their part. I mean, you know... One day, this will all come to pass, and we will be able to resume services as, as normal, so to speak, on our end, on the business side of it. However, on the family side of it, there's always going to be people who are fearful of gathering in large numbers from this point going forward. And, um, you know, I think that's going to change the scope of our business. Maybe we're going to have more private services in the future. Maybe no services at all. I don't know. You know, we've, we've helped some families do the cremation, and we've simply just gone to the cemetery to bury the urn or place the urn into a niche, and, and that's it. You know, they've, they've decided already. 
they don't want to do any service because of the COVID outbreak. And that's it right there. So you have seen then the number of cremations up? I would say the rate of cremation has increased in, in this year, 2020, as compared to having traditional services where we'd have uh, what we call a body burial within a casket. We've definitely seen the, the rate of cremation increase. And you have had to, I'm sure, adopt technology in a way you didn't have right. in place. I think it was maybe, let's see, this all started about the middle of March. Maybe by, I think, about July or August of this year, we had made the investment uh, with a video streaming service where we have three video cameras installed within our chapel, and now we have the cap- capability to video cast services in real time to basically anyone who has an internet connection anywhere in the world. And that's proved to be somewhat of a popular option. I mean, it's not for everyone, but it's the next best thing to having, you know, a chapel, 200 people as we go back to that number again. And an unlimited amount of people can view if they want to. So it's a service we're always going to offer. It's It's a great convenience overall for a family member who may live, you know, off island, or maybe just someone who's a little hesitant to come out of their home because our viewers can watch this on their um, smartphone, their tablet, a regular desktop computer. I mean, we've even had some families who've told us that they've had, they call it a watch party, where since we can't have more than 10 people in our chapel, they've gone to a friend, a relative's house or something, and they've gathered there, and the whole family watches the service, you know, at home. They, they gather at home Interesting. to watch. Yeah, it's yeah. a different take on the wake. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And how was it for your staff, you know, just because of, you know, the concern with this very infectious disease? Mm. I and mean, we started to see the first cases. And I know yeah. you folks yeah. handle the number of uh, of burials yeah. w- over at yeah. the um, Yukio Kutsu yeah. home, the Life Center. Yeah, Life Care Center, yeah. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. Our, our staff was very anxious. I mean... You know, when we first got word uh, of the coronavirus making its way to the United States and Hawaii, uh, we were basically inundated with information from some of our chemical suppliers and bombing chemical suppliers and other vendors we work with about, you know, best, best practices on how to handle remains that someone has died from the coronavirus. And we were on heightened alert already. Uh, it, you know, like the general public, on our end, we have to increase uh, cleaning on our end, sanitizing, uh, more personal protective equipment from full, besides gloves, face coverings, full gowns, shoe, shoe coverings, and the sanitization process. I mean, you know, we, we did it before, but now we have to do it at a heightened awareness. And, you know, my, my staff was scared to tell you the truth. Uh, fear, basically, it was really fear of the unknown at first. We heard about the pandemic, the virus coming, and I think when it finally came to Hilo, to some of the care centers here, and we got the first call that someone had passed away due to COVID-19, I mean, geez, that was like our, our worst fear come true, you know, because we're having to go to pick up the decedent from the care home. The virus was... We know for a fact the virus is still alive, very, very virulent still, and we will be coming face-to-face with it. So believe me, our staff was scared. But, I mean, to date, we've helped maybe about, I'd say maybe between 20 to 30 individuals here on the island, which their loved one has passed away from COVID. You know, I'll, I'll knock on wood on this, Catherine, that not one of my staff members has gotten sick. Well, we certainly appreciate, yeah. you know, your yeah. staff being out there yeah. on the so, front lines. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like time. to think whatever whatever we're doing to safeguard ourselves and our customers, it, it's working. Hopefully, you know, no, no one has fallen ill. I've never experienced anything like this. I'm, I'm 50, 50 years old this year. Uh, I've probably worked in this business from my early 20s until now. And before that, of course, we're a family-run business, so my father, my grandfather, so forth, ran the business. I, I cannot remember anything like this happening ever before to our entire world. You know, it's, it's just really a, a moment of revelation to me that something like this actually happened. Uh, this will certainly go down 
in our history books and in the history of our company, when this all comes to pass, we're probably going to say something like, you remember the time the coronavirus came to Hilo and how we had to deal with it? Schools were closed and air travel was limited and so forth. Um, Certainly, this will always stand out in our mind. And like you mentioned, everybody looking forward to the day when things get better. Um, that that seems to be the catchphrase of of the year. You know, we're going to wait till things get better. And I'm hoping, we're all hoping things get better. But I think many of us, being being realistic about the situation, realize that when things get better, we're going to have a, a new normal. You know that we all have to come back to, including funeral services, the sanitization of the chapel, the seats, the, the railings, everything. Basically, you know, it's going to have to be done on a regular basis. Um, it just goes on and on, really, as to how things are going to change, and we never had to operate that way before, really. A lot of the families we helped, you know, their their loved one was in a care facility that may have been stricken with the coronavirus. You know, you're looking back at this, and I always keep going back to the middle of March of this year when the whole world started to change. A lot of these family members were not able to see their loved ones from that time because the care homes, in effect, didn't allow any visitors into the care facility unless an extreme, you know, circumstance was taking place like um, end end of life was near. I don't know if they'd necessarily allow limited amount of family members into the care facility. But um, the stories we hear is that many, if not all of the family members, could not see their loved ones in person at the care facility. Maybe they could do like a FaceTime or video conferencing or even visit them through the, through the window on the outside of the care home. You know, these kinds of things. So when they finally passed away due to COVID-19, you know, it it probably still wasn't safe for the families to do a viewing of the decedent before the cremation or the burial. And, you know, th- this opportunity for them to properly say their goodbyes was lost, really. I mean, it's not that they didn't want to see their loved ones after they passed away, but, you know, most, if not all, of the families we met with, they realized it was a health hazard. Too risky. Yeah, too risky is what it is, indeed. And they just simply had to make the decision, hey, um, you know, please help us. All all we want to do is give mom or dad or whomever it was a proper and meaningful goodbye. But, you know, they, they had to, we could help them with the cremation or maybe even a direct burial without any type of viewing. But I think the viewing part is really therapeutic you know, for the grieving process to begin. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that element essentially was taken away from many of the families. I, I know, I know for a fact, Catherine, that many families were, were not, in their hearts, they, they weren't 100% satisfied with their decision. But due to the times we're living in and the standards we have to operate by now, I mean, what we couldn't, we really couldn't do more than that. That was Mitchell Dodo of the Big Island's Dodo Mortuary, reflecting on what it's been like dealing with death and grieving in the time of COVID-19. Support for HPR comes from Alexander and Baldwin, owners and managers of office, industrial, and retail properties across the state. A and B, building partnerships in Hawaii for 150 years with a commitment to provide for the needs of island communities. On the next Fresh Air, actor and rapper Riz Ahmed. He won an Emmy for his starring role in the HBO series The Night Of, and was also in Rogue One, A Star Wars Story, Jason Bourne, Nightcrawler, and The Road to Guantanamo. He stars on the new movie Sound of Metal as a punk metal drummer who loses his hearing and has to rethink his life. 
Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More information at proservice.com slash coronavirus. Has someone ever told you that you should write a book about your life, but maybe you just didn't know where to start? Well, a new program from Honolulu-based Watermark Publishing can help you get your memories into a book. The guided program, called the Halia Aloha Series, prompts writers to craft short micro-narratives, which helps authors capture a snapshot in their life and makes it easier for readers to enter a memoir. After a roughly nine-month writing process, writers will have a few published copies under Watermark's Legacy Isle publishing imprint. Darian Shugi is the uh, Halia Aloha series editor. She wrote Writing the Hawaii Memoir in 2014. She worked with Watermark on, an, on the new program after seeing growing interest in autobiographical writing. She spoke with the Conversations producer, Jason Ubai, about the series and micro-narratives. So we thought this might be a really great way to get people who have a really good idea or who have a lot of memories and don't know where to get started and might be intimidated by writing a full-length memoir to find another way in and to also make it really accessible for readers. So we already had the book out and we wanted to maybe develop a program that would just take all of the stress from people. And especially now, everyone's so overwhelmed. Nobody feels like they have time. And so I designed the program with Don so that it would be about 15 minutes a day, five days a week. You could do less, you can do more, so that you can build a body of work and then publish it through our program. Can you talk about some of the exercises and the writing prompts to get people started on, you know, writing down their memories? Yeah, you know, a lot of the prompts, so we have a workbook that comes with the program, and it's a week-by-week workbook. And there are five prompts every week to kind of get you thinking about different ways into your story. But, you know, people will look at a prompt sometime and think, okay, this prompt about uh, writing about my first car or my first kiss or my first teacher that was an influence on me, you know, people might think, well, that's not really what I want to be writing about in my memoir. But what these prompts do is they give you a chance to find your your story, to sort of start peeling back the onion. So the prompts are really designed as like free writes to get you going and to sort of warm up your writing juices, so to speak. So the idea is that you start with a prompt and then you just pay attention to where it takes you. And you usually write for a very specific amount of time, like I said, 15 minutes, or maybe, you you know, it's one page of writing, and that's it. And then when you tell your brain that that's sort of what you want to do going into it, your brain has this way of sort of organizing your thoughts around that. So it's not going to start this huge novella. It's going to be like, this is what we've got, 15 minutes. And so it sort of organizes and pulls those memories and makes it a very efficient writing process. And it's very surprising every single time. So the prompts are designed just to kind of get you in and to get you started. The plan is on a set schedule. How long do you think it will take uh, people to, to write the, their memoir? Well, we created the program so that if you just wanted to do 15 minutes a day, and you're starting from scratch. You don't have an existing manuscript or you haven't written pages towards your memoir yet. So you're starting from scratch. If you were to commit, you know, four, four days a week, 15 minutes at a time, you would be able to move through the program Um, at a fairly comfortable pace and you know that might be skipping a week here or there and doubling up on another week or just maybe doing everything on the weekend within nine months you can go from a blank page to a published memoir that gets released under the Halia Aloha banner and becomes a part of our family of titles micro memoir and micro essay titles but people can work faster or take a little bit more time if they need to in the program we generally recommend that people Um, come to the program if they're really ready to move forward with this because we do feel like momentum is a big part of this. But if you already have an existing manuscript or um, an idea, it could go a lot faster. If you're somebody who has a little more time to commit maybe on the weekends, it'll go a lot faster. So nine months is a comfortable pace without any stress. Um, And again, you're really only writing for the first four, five months is the writing and editing. And then it goes into our production queue. And that's is then on us, and that just takes the time that it takes for design and publication and everything to happen. So if you go through the program from day one, you know, in 2021, you could have a book comfortably before the end of the year. The other thing about our book is we do have 
um, a very specific page range. And so the books are fairly slender. They will run about 23 to 25,000 words. Um, and that's the other thing that makes it really accessible, both to readers and writers. So for writers, it's not intimidating, you know, getting these memories down and finding a way to frame them. And, and you know, we give a lot of guidance, both in terms of my own involvement as the series editor, one-on-one -on -one consultations, feedback on your work every month. You can submit up to two pieces if you're with our signature package, and then you also get a developmental edit of your final manuscript. So that gives you a lot of opportunities to keep honing and crafting and refining. And if, if you're someone who's like, you know, I can totally do this on my own, I'm, I know what I want to do, then, you know, this is just a course to help you move through it and actually finish your projects. A lot of writers are known, myself included, for starting projects and not finishing them. And so this is designed to help you finish um, your project and to have something out in the world that you can share with others. So this is for those people who say, I should write a, a memoir, um, write a book, and you maybe started it, but, uh, you know, haven't uh, gotten it down to actually uh, getting it into the publication process. Well, you know, what I think is really honestly great about the program is that we can, we're, we're looking forward to working with writers at all levels and with their manuscripts and their projects at all different stages. So it's designed for someone to start from scratch. But if you already have, you know, like, oh, I've always wanted to do it, but I didn't know how to get started, or I don't want to write a full book in the traditional sort of narrative arc of a memoir that we've seen in the past, then this is a great program. But I've also written it so that if you already have a manuscript that you've been, you know, sort of noodling around with and you're trying to figure out how to make it work or you've been stalled on it, that this will jumpstart you. And then not only that, it'll help you maybe add some, some additional pieces to your work or, you know, you can still have a full-length memoir. You don't have to do it in these short forms. But the short forms are are super popular right now. People, readers really appreciate it because they can take a small bite out of your story at any point in time and be really moved by the work. And they don't necessarily have to commit to the whole book right away. They can just kind of approach it as they need it. And that helps the writer too. So we can work with a project at any stage, but really I think the, the hope here is that we can really help people achieve their goals of sharing their stories and seeing their words in print. Under the Julio Aloha series, there's three books, and one includes your own allegiance. And, you know, you were saying about uh, their nice short entry points, and you know, I was looking through the table of contents, and I uh, saw the one on Spam Musubi, so I was like, oh, I'll just read that one. <laughs> that was a good place to, yeah, pick up uh, on your life, and, you know, I had a lot of insight about your family, and I thought, you know, like you were saying, those are very uh, good for the, the reader to kind of just come in and take a look at, uh, at your life. Yeah, you know, the thing about micro is that you don't spend a lot of time with backstory. You go straight for sort of what I call like the pulse of the heartbeat of the moment. And it doesn't even have to be a huge, big moment. You know, I think sometimes some of our best memories of family or our childhood are these small things, these small little things that we don't want to get lost. You know, something that you remember that you used to do with your grandmother or your grandfather or something that someone once said to you. And um, you know, and, and it can be things that were formative and difficult. They don't always have to be, you know, cheery and happy. But I think the idea is to say, these are some things that helped shape me and helped form me. And, you know, this is who I am. And, you know, possibly also this is how my outlook on, on life or what feels important to me. And, you know, everybody, every writer has a different reason for writing what they write. And so part of this process is you discovering what that is. But in the meantime, it's to help you really, again, build a body of work for yourself, personal work, and to sort of understand what that means for you. And I, I think as a legacy for other people in your family, you know, your children, other family members who may not know certain things about you or parts of your family, it's really powerful. And I think as a storytelling perspective from Hawaii, there are a lot of stories here that just people in general and the rest of the world would still love to hear and learn about and know. And those stories aren't as readily available as, as I think we'd all love to see. So hopefully that will be part of helping those stories get out. I think it's really interesting because there are people who, who will sometimes say, I don't really feel like I have anything to say or, you know, my life isn't very interesting. And I think that's where the power of the prompt comes in because prompts allow us to, again, peel back that first level of resistance, right? So again, if you write about um, a memory of, I don't know, I think one of the prompts is really basic, like, you know, talk about, were you ever in a sport? Talk about a PE class or talk about something that you were involved in that had to do with athletics. And if you were somebody who was not sporty, this may not seem like a very interesting question for you. 
But if you start writing and you do the prompt, what happens is it leads to the thing that is a story that you were actually trying to tell. And you may not even be aware of it consciously. It's a subconscious process, which is what I love about writing. And so I think for anybody who's starting to think about their family history and think about their stories or who don't know if they have a story or they know that their story is interesting but they don't know where to begin, I would say just start with a prompt and give yourself you know, a, a time limit to just see where it goes and to do it as regularly as possible because this is a consistency game. And so the more you do it, the more you're tapping into that part of your brain and the more you're going to find some really cool things that were in the archives of your memory that you didn't even know were there. And those are the stories, I think, that, that we want to hear. That was Darian Gee, author and editor of the Halea Aloha series. It's a new memoir writing program from Watermark Publishing. The program results in published works, and there are now three in the series. Gee's book, Allegiance, The Kindergarten Dropout of Kapoho by Francis Kagugawa, and Huakai Hele, Long Voyage by Sally Jo Bowman. If you're interested in joining the program, visit halealoha.net, or you can find links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Close the show for today. Tomorrow, we hear about a new campaign built around a cute Hawaiian duck with a serious message about sea level rise. We introduce you to Kaloa Iki. We also like to hear from you. What do you think about the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine? Are you in the priority group? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at HI Conversation. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.